If you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you please to open them to the book of Revelation, the last chapter, which is chapter 22, and we're going to begin the epilogue, the end, not only of the book of Revelation, but this is the end of the entire Bible. And here at the end of the Bible, in these last 15 or so verses, there is a, a final order to the church. And it's like, well, it's like a group of soldiers waiting at their post for reinforcements or relief. They, they, they have their orders. They have a mission. They've been given their plans. They know the enemy. They're about to go on the offensive. But there is a long and a difficult time ahead of them. They're going to be tried. They're going to be tested. They're going to be tired. And some will be tempted to surrender. Some of them aren't going to make it. They're anxious for the days ahead, and they're in danger of losing heart. And so their commander gives them a final set of orders, a final word to buttress them against their doubts, against their fears, against the overwhelming odds, so that they can stand and advance against their enemies. That's what we have in these verses. And that's it's really just what we have seen throughout the book of Revelation, isn't it? There will be temptations and tribulations and troubles. But he who overcomes, who conquers, who endures to the end, will be saved. And these final verses are, are given to embolden the hearts of God's people. One final word that will preserve them and keep them until their captain comes. And these are for us. They are for a church facing and uncertain and a challenging future. And these verses will buttress you, hold you up against doubts and fears and overwhelming pressure so that you can stand firm to the end. It does this in two ways. It does it by blessing. And we won't get through everything this morning, certainly. But it does this through blessing and through threatenings. Warnings. In the same way, a sentry would be encouraged to hold their post because of the praise of their commander. Right? You, you held on against this overwhelming force, they're praised. Or they would be reprimanded for abandoning their post. In the ancient world, if you were a sentry and you fell asleep or abandoned your post, it was a death sentence. Both of those things serve to help to keep the sentry hold the line. And so the Christian is encouraged here with both blessings and threatenings. And I'll say this up front, I don't know which you need to hear. In fact, in a group this large, the one thing I do know is many need to hear both. Because some are wavering in the face of the world and your faith feels paper thin. Have you ever had any at all? And you're ready to turn tail and, and run. And others here, you know, you, you dug your feet in up to your knees. And you're determined to live for Christ no matter how hard it gets. And you need to be reminded it's worth it in the end. And there's power for you to press on and persevere. And still others, you don't even know if you're in the fight at all. Well, if that's you this morning, this is a time of decision. 
This is like Elijah on, on the mountain. If God is God, follow Him. But if the beast is God, serve the beast. Time is coming quickly to a close. And when it does, everybody's fate's going to be sealed as Christ returns in glory. This is the crossroads that we find ourselves at this morning in Revelation 22, 6-21. And He said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent His angel to show His servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do this. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoers still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do righteous, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one. We read about this in Matthew 16. To repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so they may have the right to the tree of life and they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. The Spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take of the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Well, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. And thank You for Your Son to whom Your Word points. Lord, I pray that You would encourage Your people this morning, that those who waver would be strengthened, that those who wander would be brought back in. Lord, if there is deception in the heart, that You would cut through it and that we would see ourselves as we are so that we wouldn't be swept away in the days to come but that we would be steadfast, immovable, and always abounding in the grace of Your Son, Jesus Christ. You sent Him to save God. And I pray, Lord, this morning He would receive the reward of His suffering. That people would be brought to the feet of Jesus.
the only Savior of the world. Lord, help me to preach. And Lord, I entrust the hearts of this congregation to you. You know where they are. You know what they need to hear. You made them. You owned them. You love them. And you alone can do the work necessary upon all of us, Lord. Words are just words. But it's your Spirit, Lord, that works through them. And so we pray, Lord, that you would work in this morning in this place. It's to you we look. And we offer our time, our minds, our hearts in worship to you, O Lord. Help us, God. Amen. The book of Revelation is not a book of facts to be learned or even of prophecies to be deciphered. It's how it's thought about. That's not what it is. In fact, much of the attention given to the book of Revelation, the study of it over, over maybe the last hundred years, well, it's been just that. Prophetic pontification. Right? How does this event correspond to the book of Revelation or to the book of Daniel or to, or to the Olivet Discourse? There are self-proclaimed prophecy experts who can pinpoint where every headline coming out of the Middle East fits somewhere in biblical prophecy. I mean, certainly there's been a lot of that the last couple of weeks. I, I know of one individual, a, a pastor and a professor, he was quizzing his students. He said, could this, you know, what's happening right now, could it possibly be a fulfillment of this particular passage, quoting from the book of Revelation? And the answer, of course, was, no, because they did not yet have a perfect red heifer in order to build the third temple. In fact, there are whole ministries that are attempting to breed, I am kid you not, they raise money, raise funds to breed the perfect spotless red heifer and send it to Israel so the construction of the temple can begin. And if that's confusing to you, it's okay. It just means you've used your time well and haven't wasted it trying to put together all of these prophecies that have nothing to do with a literal temple and red cows. And so I, I want you to notice how the words of the prophecy in this book of Revelation are described in verse 7. They are meant to be kept. It's again later on the angel says, we are those who keep the words of this book. Blessed are those who keep the words of this prophecy. And the idea of the church keeping the requirements laid out in the book of Revelation, I mean, that doesn't even cross most people's minds. There are commands here, and we're expected to keep them. They're given to the church, something to do to be kept. I didn't even think the church was going to be around after chapter 4. Raptured away. Wrong. This book is not a, a book of prophetic future visions. It's a book of prophetic commands to be kept. And this, this just betrays how easy it is to think wrongly about Revelation. People get so excited about knowing the future that they, they lose sight of what the words actually say. And when people talk about this book and make it all about future, and all about ethnic national Israel, and they remove themselves from the pictures, quite literally, guess what? Every blessing this book was supposed to give to them is forfeited. 
Because there is a blessing for those who keep the words of this prophecy. So just think for a minute, what is, what is Revelation telling you to keep? What's it been commanding you to do? So you see, this, this is not to be understood as an end times playbook because it's not what it is. It is a book designed to encourage God's people to hold fast by giving them marching orders for trying times. You miss that entirely if you make it all about some future that has no bearing on you beyond speculation. This is a book to be kept. But there's something else going on in theological circles that underlies all of this. And it's a kind of, of neo-Gnosticism. So what in the world is that? The Gnostics were, a, were one of the first heretical groups in the, in, in the Christian church. Some of the very first ones. And they said, if you really want, and you hear this all the time today, by the way, many groups do this. If you really want to know what the Bible says, if you really want to know who God is, we have the special knowledge that you need to figure the, that out. And so it's a, it's a seeking of special knowledge and esoteric things that can unlock the true meaning of the Bible and prophecies. And don't you get that impression when you, when you sometimes hear this book being spoken of? People are, are motivated by finding some hidden keys, right? Or a book comes out, the key to understanding biblical prophecy. You see them all the time. This kind of thinking, it sweeps over people and churches and pastors and they, and they become almost obsessed with the end times and, and prophetic fulfillment. And thankfully, it's not as common today as it has been in the past, but it's really done some harm to our thinking about the Christian end game. Right? So much so that you have organizations fundraising to build a third temple in Jerusalem. There are organizations doing this so that the Jews can begin to offer sacrifices again. Have you ever stopped to think about that for five minutes? Christ, the once for all sacrifice, has been given, and you have Christians raising money to do the work literally of the devil and cloud the minds of the Jews in darkness by pointing them back to the sacrificial system and the temple to do the very thing that the book of Hebrews forbids. If you go back in the book of Hebrews to that sacrificial system, there is no sacrifice for you. There already is a third temple. This is it. The New Testament's clear. The church is the temple of the living God. But for that to happen, for, for a, a so-called Christian to advocate a renewal of the sacrificial system that Christ put an end to, and to rebuild the temple that Christ Himself tore down, for that to happen, eschatology, end time stuff, that has to take the place of Christ. Interpreting prophecy and seeing it fulfilled becomes more important than the Great Commission and the person of Jesus Christ. I mean, to put it, put it simply, the end times becomes an idol. It's taken the place of Christ. And, and people have stopped worshiping Jesus and they've started worshiping the excitement of prophecy fulfilled. It happens. Some aspect of, of their theology, someone's theology has replaced God and become a God unto itself. 
But this doesn't happen just with prophecy. It happens all the time. Some people worship academics and their, their whole Christianity is just about how much they can know or how well they can exegete a text. Some people worship Reformed theology. When you ask them about their Christian testimony, it has more to do with how they discovered the five points than how they came to know Christ. You're aware of what I'm speaking of. Now those things are important. It's good to study. It's good to be able to handle the Word correctly. Study to show yourself approved. Cut a straight line when you're dealing with the text. I'm not saying those things don't matter. They're good things. But they can begin to take the place of the most important things. And when they do, they become idolatry. In Jesus' own day, the Pharisees worshipped the law. They studied the Scriptures diligently because they thought they had life in the book. But life is not in the book. Did you know that? Eternal life is not found in the Bible. You say, really? It is found in the One to whom the Bible points. Because the Bible without Jesus... It means nothing. In fact, that's the Lord's rebuke to the Pharisees, wasn't it? You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about Me. Idolatry is a constant temptation among God's people. And not idolatry of bad things, but of good things. God gives good things. He teaches us things. And we start to worship what He's given instead of Him. I always think of the bronze serpent lifted up in the wilderness. Do you remember that? Uh, I forget its name. They came up with a name for it eventually. But whoever looked at it would be saved from the poison coursing through their veins from the venomous serpents. Do you know what happens a few hundred years later? The people are worshiping it like an idol and Hezekiah sees it and he destroys it. Cuts it up. Melts it down. Because the people began to worship it instead of God. And we even see this here in the book of Revelation. The messenger of God. The angel sent to John. John is so impressed by the message, he falls down and he worships at the angel's feet. John is severely rebuked. The angel tells him again, because this isn't the first time it's happened, stand up. Get on your feet. How dare you worship God? That's the angel's command to John. Worship God. And I think it would do us all well to take some time for a serious self-examination and ask ourselves, who are we really worshiping? There is a call here to worship God and God alone. Because if, if you're not, you're, you're, you're focused in on other things, you will be susceptible to deception and to compromise and to being overcome. Listen, if you're If you aren't worshiping God, you're worshiping something. You were made to. You were designed to. You can't escape this. And just like John and so many others, and I'm talking to everyone, but especially to Christians, you can lose your first love and fall for other things. Fall for good things. God-given things. Even your family. Things that turn our fallen human heart away from God and become idols. Anything can become an idol. And if it does, it's to be repented of and put in its 
proper place. And that's really the first call here that will enable you to endure difficult times. Worship God alone and resist any temptation to give your heart to other things. This is not hard to understand why this would preserve you. A man with divided loyalties is always going to have a difficult time choosing a side. But one who has strong convictions will find it much easier. One who, like Paul, knows in whom he has believed in. He's not going to be pulled every which way when he is forced to make a decision. So foster those convictions and root out sneaky idols and give yourself wholly, entirely to the Lord God. Worship God. Why? Because Christ is coming back. But not meek and mild in a manger. The first time He came as the Lamb, this time He comes as the Lion, and the Lion comes to judge. That's the second thing you see in these verses. And again, we're not working through them in, in order, we're working through them by theme. You see here, a call to repentance because judgment is coming. And it's a broad call. This isn't a call just for God's people, though some aspects of it are for those who call themselves Christians, but this is a call to all, the last call. And the eyes now turn to Christ who is the judge and who is returning with His recompense, and that recompense is rewards for the righteous and curses for the unrighteous. You have them identified here, two groups of people. And those two groups of people are defined at the end of verse 12 by what they have done. You know, it used to be popular to ask people in evangelism, if you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, maybe you've you've heard that, maybe you've used that. Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? And you would hear everyone will be judged based on that, whether they have one or not. But that question never sat right with me. You know why? Because one of the things the Bible teaches is that everybody has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so the question is not, do you have one? The question is, what kind of relationship do you have? Do you love Him and worship Him? Is He your Savior? You have the kind of relationship with Him that a a child has with the Father who rescued them. It's an intimate, personal relationship defined by love. Or is your relationship like the relationship between someone and their enemy, their nemesis? What enemies do people have the most animosity towards? Ones they've never met? You know, they just kind of pose some abstract threat? Or your enemies, people you know and are at odds with, those who oppose you? How do you define that kind of animosity that boils over the edge when someone stretches out their finger, uses their words, and they, and they denounce what you desire and what you love or you? You know how we define that most intimate antagonism? You know what we say? Now it's personal, right? It's personal. And there is no greater antagonism than the animosity between God and man. God has spoken. 
and even shown through nature that the sin, according to Romans 1, the sin that man loves is evil and he has condemned it and he condemns you because of it. And so you have a personal relationship towards Christ, towards God, and it's not defined by love. It is defined by enmity. Everyone has a personal relationship to the Lord. The question is, what is it? And what has that relationship created in you? How have you acted and lived based on that relationship? One group has their robes washed. The other, their robes are filthy. But every person wears a robe. A spiritual garment, a covering, a coat. And you're, you're always weaving into it your thoughts, your words, your deeds. This robe is it's a symbol. It's of your character. It's of you. It's a symbol of what you have done. Of who you are. Is it washed or is it dirty? Because look at the end of verse 12. Again, we are repaid according to what we have done. It's just hard to understand. We don't have a good grasp of justice today or of consequences or of actions having consequences. We don't. Nobody expects to be repaid according to what they have done. I mean, just think about how it's talked about. It's just, justice is just a blame game. See who can come out on top. No, people are going to be held accountable for what they have done, not because of anything that's happened to them. Let, let me give you an example. I want you to imagine a thief who steals an old woman's purse, and he takes the purse, and he, he tries to grab it, he whacks her over the head and knocks her onto the ground. The jury's debating now. He's, it's his day in court. The jury's debating. What are we going to do? What does that conversation look like? How do people talk about this kind of thing? Well, what was his upbringing like? He had both parents. What economic background does he have? And if you don't believe this is the case, then you're not paying attention. Just in Dartmouth, uh, a couple of weeks ago, there was a man convicted of committing incest with his daughter. And even though the law said he should have gotten 10 years, I kid you not, because of the color of his skin, he was given house arrest. That's not justice. That's a fundamental denial of justice. In Leviticus, we're told over and over, do not show partiality to the rich or to the poor. But we like to blame. Blame everything. We make excuses based on our circumstances. We blame our parents or lack thereof. We blame our environment. We blame our bad choices that we blame on the bad environment. It happens all the time. And people say, no, 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 no. It's not a sin. It's a consequence of my situation. I'm a victim of circumstance. Now, I'm not saying circumstances don't weigh upon you, but I am saying in the heavenly courtroom, that's not going to fly. What have you done? Period. The environment is not ultimately responsible for making you the way you are. In fact, the reason your environment influenced you the way that it did is because you are a sinner. 
and the environment, all that your environment did was enabled you to justify embracing sin that was already in the heart wanting to come out. I mean, have you ever seen a man? I knew a man. I grew up with a guy like this. He just, he was just a fine, upstanding young man, uh, seemed by all accounts a very Christian young man. His father died. And when it happened, he lost all restraint and threw himself headfirst into every kind of immorality. It happens. Now, do you honestly believe that the only reason he did that was because of his environment? It's not because of his environment. The tragedy gave him the opportunity to express the sin he desired all along. See, we're not born neutral, morally neutral, and and then end up in circumstances that make us sinful. We're, We're sinful by nature and go on to live accordingly. I mean, think why in the face of tragedy, in the face of a poor environment, why do people not rise above that and act righteously instead of sinfully? Nine times out of ten. The answer's simple. We are sinners who love their sin. We don't like that. Because if we can blame our sin and justify what we do, then we can say, the problem isn't me. Problem's out there. It's not in here. And if I'd been dealt a better hand, I would be a better person. If you buy into that, you will eventually deny the gospel. It's happening right now among evangelicals who have embraced progressive social justice ideas and why the statement on social justice and the gospel was important. When it came out, they were warning, if you go down this track, you will lose the gospel. And everyone was criticizing them. And This was maybe, what, five years ago? Criticizing them, saying, no, 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 that'll never happen. They don't know what they're talking about. Exactly what it warned against came to place amongst those who embraced it or opposed it. Exactly what it warned against began to happen. The gospel got lost as the blame game got played. Listen, why why does this matter? It matters because if ultimately the problem is the environment, all you need is a new environment. But even uh, you know that doesn't work. How many of you, you found yourself in a new environment and guess what? Your sins came with you. Your circumstance didn't do it. Why does this matter so much? It matters because if all you needed was a change of scenery, you wouldn't need a Savior. If all you needed was a new environment, you wouldn't need a new covenant. And so long as you play the blame game, you will never get to the heart of your sin, you will never deal with the root of the matter, and you will never be able to repent. All all it will be is superficial and insincere. Because it's, it's being lessened by everything else out there. Yeah, I know I'm a sinner, but that's the real problem out here. We've got it totally backward. The real problem is in here, and that makes everything out there worse. When you stand before God, you're going to have to give an answer for your thoughts and your words and your deeds, and you're going to have to give an answer for them. You're the only one who's going to do it. Not your parents, not your environment, not your neighbors. There's not going to be any mitigating factors here. You will answer for what you have done. And for everybody, there's going to be two radically different 
outcomes. One group is going to stand before the Lord with filthy garments, and the other with garments they have washed and robes that have been made white. And I might read that and think that the washing of robes then is the strenuous pursuit of personal holiness. And only those who achieve some level of righteousness are getting in. That's not what this means. In fact, some level of righteousness, some degree of righteousness, that's not even what's required. The requirement is perfect righteousness. And so you see, this this isn't wages through self-improvement. The wages of sin are death, and those are the only wages you can earn. This is the free gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. And you say, yeah, but look, it says they washed their robes. Revelation 7.14 They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That's how you make your garments white. That's how you make your soul spotless and your deeds clean. Not by trying harder or doing more. You make them white by washing them in the blood of the Lamb. And you do that by believing in the only One who can cleanse you from your sin. I mean, have you never read Isaiah 1.18? Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Or you sing the song, What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. The only way anyone will ever be saved from hell and destined for heaven is because they've been covered by the blood of Christ. Because He alone can take away your sins. He alone can make you clean. And He alone can take your filthy soul and make it white as snow. And so this here at the end of the book is a call to come. It's just like Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who is thirsty. Are you thirsty for life? You're thirsty for satisfaction? You're thirsty for forgiveness and for righteousness? To have your, have your sins that you know make you guilty washed away? Most importantly of all, thirsty for Christ? You may come to Him. This is a promise for everyone who is willing. All are commanded. Whoever desires, come and be saved. Whoever is broken and contrite, come and be accepted before the Lord. But you know, this message ultimately is not only for the world. It's not only for the lost. It is also written to the church. And when those in the church hear that they will be judged for their works, there are those who understand it. You know, they're trusting wholly in Christ, confident in Him, living out their faith in fruitfulness. But that's not who's being warned here. There are two groups in the church that need to pay attention. One of them is a struggler. Strugglers, yes. Those who are doubters. And they look at their life and their works and the only thing they wonder is, am I even saved at all? If that's you, the irony is the only reason you care if you're saved at all is because you are already a believer. And you say, yeah, but I'm, I'm struggling with sin and, I'm, and my thought life and I'm, and I'm fighting. And I can stop you right there. You're not talking about justification. 
You're talking about sanctification. You're talking about the mortification of sin, putting sin to death. And that's not what we're talking about. Here, it is justification by faith alone. Nothing else added to it. And if you're at war with sin, the sin in your life, you know everything you need to know to answer the question, am I saved? I mean, why do you think you hate the sin in the first place? You just worked that up inside yourself one day. You saw the consequences of it and thought, hey, this is pretty bad. I should probably make war on my sin. My pride. You, know, you, you, want, you want to please the Lord and live a life pleasing to Him. How come? It's because you're, is it because you're righteous? You know, I stand head and shoulders above everybody else and I want to please the Lord. And So what about everybody else? No, the only reason you hate your sin and fight against it and want to please God is because God has redeemed you and put a new heart in you, made you born again so that you want those things. Lost people don't do this. Lost people do not care about their sin. Lost people do not care about pleasing God and obeying His Word. Lost people don't struggle and agonize over the sin in their life and fight against it. Lost people make excuses for it, justify it, and continue in it. So thank God that it bothers you and that you don't want sin to be a part of your life anymore. And if that's you, let me tell you something that might help you. Something that can cause a lot of problems for believers today is that they've taken the promises of tomorrow and expect to have them now. And God has not promised sinless perfection and unbroken union and conscious awareness of His nearness in this age. He has promised it, but He's promised it for the age to come. Here, there will be sins to fight and battles to be fought and clouds that hide His face. So don't get upset with yourself or God and don't get despondent when you wake up in the morning and you get out of bed and you've got to fight and seek the Lord. Fight to believe Him even when He seems far off. That's just what this life is. I heard an example of when I was, when I was studying for this message. And I went like this. I just imagine a kid who knows what he's going to get on his birthday. But it's not for another eight months. And you see the kid and he is sad. And he's sulking. And you ask him, well, what's wrong? And he tells you, well, I'm getting a bike for my birthday, but my birthday isn't here yet. And he's all bent out of shape. Have you ever done that? God, I don't know if you even love me or if you're even my father because I woke up this morning and I didn't have all those things you promised me today. God, you said I wouldn't have to deal with this temptation anymore. You said I wouldn't have to worry about it. You, you, you said I would see your face and know you always. But I don't. Well, God did promise these things when you're dead. And you're not dead yet. So don't get distraught or impatient with the promises of God. They are coming. Persevere to have them. But the second group, second group being warned here, are those in the church who are self-satisfied and who really want nothing to do with God. In verse 15, there's a list of sinners and the one word that describes their judgment, 
There's only one that describes their, there's a few that describe them, one that describes their judgment. Do you see what it is? Outside. For those who love the Lord, they are with Him in the city. They have the tree of life, but these, justice has been served, Christ has been vindicated, and they get exactly what they desired. They get exactly what they want. They're outside of the city of God. You say, people, really? Look, how many people do you know who want nothing to do with Christ, nothing to do with the church, and nothing to do with God? That's exactly what they get. They will be away from His presence, from His kindness, His benevolent gaze forever. They are described as dogs in verse 15. Look at the first and the last in this list, described as dogs. Dogs. Why dogs? Because just think about it in, in, in terms of the book of Revelation. Everything we've seen so far, why dogs? Because dogs, if you have one, one thing you know, the only thing they're concerned about is their physical well-being. There's no concern about the spirit. There's no concern about the spiritual. Dogs don't weigh the consequences of their actions. Dogs don't have a moral compass guiding them. Dogs don't worry about the life to come. All they care about is this life and the security and comforts they can get while they're here. And when people do the same and live that way, they are, as Peter tells us, brute beasts. They're outside. They have preserved in this life above all else their earthly security. And again, if you've paid attention in the book of Revelation, how do people preserve their comfort in earthly security? Selling out Christ. Isn't that what the mark of the beast represents? Buying and selling. No pressure economically. The harlot of Babylon... Living in luxury, security, luxury, comfort, ease, no suffering, indulgence of sin, conscience seared. That's what they wanted. That's what they got. And they are forever outside the spiritual Jerusalem, cast away from the face of God into the lake of fire. Those who live for this life. And their last description, they are liars. Literally, lovers of falsehood. Lovers of falsehood. Lovers of duplicity. G.K. Beale in his, his commentary, he, he identifies them this way. They seek the benefits of Christ along with the advantage of the ungodly world. They seek the benefits of Christ and knowing His people and at the same time, all of the advantages of the ungodly world. It is everyone who is of false speech and false life. They know the right words. They may even do some of the right things, but their hearts are far from Him. And doesn't John warn us about this over and over and over again in all of his writing? In his Gospel, you know, I, I think of John 8, those who truly believe and love the Lord Jesus versus those who just profess that they do. It says many believed in Him, and by the time you get to the end of the book, they want to kill Him. Jesus says, you're of your father the devil. He calls them liars. And in his epistles, it couldn't be clearer. First John chapter 2, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You can't play both sides of the fence. Either you're in or you're out. 
And it's going to be really clear on that day where you are. When the Lord returns, He'll purify His bride, separate sheep from the goats. There's going to be virgins with oil who go in and those without any who are outside. And so this is not a call or a warning to the enemies of Christ, at least outright. But it is a call to the superficial and to the hypocrite who are affiliated with the church, but whose heart is held captive by the world. I mean, I, I don't know how many times I've seen a church and there's a few believers in the church and they're trying to, but there are so many people in the membership and they don't know the Lord. They're just playing church and they wreak havoc. They make it so difficult. When pressure begins to mount from the world, they sell one another out. It's no wonder this is in here, this command. Weed out, you see, the lovers of duplicity or warn them at least. If you want to persevere and survive as a church, this has to be dealt with. And you say, well, what about verse 11? That seems pretty final to me. Let the evildoer still do evil. And do not hinder the one who, in spite of all of the pleadings that they've heard, all of the admonitions and all of the exhortations, don't hinder the one who hardens himself in wickedness. Don't prevent them from continuing in unrighteousness. You say, what's going on here? Is this just say, all right, time's come, hands off, let him go. It's not much different than when the prophet says, Ephraim is joined to idols, leave him alone. Or they are the blind leading the blind, leave them alone. Or do not cast your pearls before swine lest they trample you underfoot. What's going on here? This is hard words for hard hearts. Because there, there is a kind of person who hears this warning and they yawn. They can't wait for church to be over so they can go on back to their sin without a troubled conscience. What hope can there be for someone who has seared their conscience and despised the Word of God so thoroughly? You see, does that mean there's no hope at all? No, the very warning, the very condemnation itself is meant, it has a purpose. It's meant to shatter that hard heart. It's like the parables. For some, what do they do? They lead to a greater knowledge of the Lord and of the kingdom and of life, and they lead people to Christ. And for others, they just confuse them and they walk away with nothing. Or maybe even a better example in the book of Exodus. Do you remember? God tells Moses, stand back. I'm going to wipe these people out and make a great nation out of you. That sounds pretty final, doesn't it? What happens? What is the effect of that threat which the Sovereign Lord intended? Moses cries out on behalf of the people interceding for them, and the people are saved. And sometimes God speaks this way to scare people, break them out of their duplicity. I remember once in my own life, in a period of of rebellion. I wanted to go my own way. And I remember praying, and it was as though, uh, or being led to pray, and it was as though the Lord said, fine, go your own way, and I will make you go that way, and it is away from me, and away from me you will go. And I remember it because it was so terrifying that that night it drove me to prayer until I was forgiven, and until I knew the Lord had relented, and I repented. It put an end to my own way once and for all. 
And so the Lord speaks this way, this hard way to smash through the stubborn hearts of men. He speaks this way to break you so that you would cry out in repentance and turn to Him and live. Lord, don't count me among the evil. Lord, don't leave me alone. Lord, don't depart from me. Don't send me outside of your holy city. That's the message. Don't be hardened. Don't be hard-hearted. Don't steer yourself in unbelief. Repent because the coming of the Lord is at hand. In verse 16, briefly, the Lord is exalted as the root of David. And that connects Him to the whole of the Old Testament, doesn't it? In what way? He is the promised Savior. And He is the only Messiah. He is the one to whom God has been pointing for thousands of years. And it's a reminder. It's a testimony. Don't turn your back on Him and walk away. He is the great and promised King and there is no other. He is the one that everything God has done and said in His Word and done in history is bearing witness to and pointing to. And if God has pointed everything towards His Son, where else are you going to turn? Where else are you going to go in unrepentance? He is the one. And we've been told over and over and over again. And now, here in the end of the Bible, the testimony is complete. There's nothing more to say. The revelation is closed. No more additions. The Word of God has been spoken. And it's final. And maybe you think, well, yeah, but it's been 2,000 years. And even in my own life, I, I've heard this final warning dozens of times. Have you ever been at the airport and over the intercom system you hear some poor guy's name who's probably about to miss his flight? And they begin paging him all over the airport. Get him to the gate, right? Final boarding has begun. John Smith, party of three, gate 27, last call to board. But it isn't the last call. And a few minutes later, you hear the same message again. John Smith, party three, last call. Now, if you're on the flight waiting to leave, you know what you're thinking? You're thinking, it's been the last call five times. Hurry up and leave. You're not saying that if you're John Smith, party of three. You're running as fast as you can and you're out of breath when you get there and they've given you more time you deserve and you give them your ticket and you get on the plane and you're not annoyed that they said six times or 60 times, last call, John Smith, party of three. You're just grateful that they kept calling out your name. That's what's happening here. That's the issue. Will you respond to this last and final call? Christ is coming soon. And the call is not going to continue forever. There will be a day when you hear last call for the last time. So seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way, His hypocrisy, and the unrighteous man, His thoughts, His pride. Return to the Lord so He may have compassion on you and turn to God for He will abundantly pardon. Well, let's pray. Lord, I pray that You would work in this place this morning. 
that you would soften hard hearts, give new life to consciences that are seared. Lord, that you would save those who profess your name and live as though this world is all there is. I pray, Lord, that those who love lies and live a lie, that they would be awakened and convicted, Lord, not to drive them into the dust, but so that, Lord, they would run to the One who can pardon and forgive them. Lord, whose lives are nothing but a slander of Your name, Lord, You would delight to forgive them this morning, and I pray they would come and not cower or run in fear, but run to You to have their burdens removed. Lord, You are merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You will not always chide, nor do You keep Your anger forever. You do not repay us according to our sins or deal with us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is Your steadfast love towards those who fear You. As far as the east is from the west, so far have You removed the transgression from those who come near to You. As a father shows compassion to his children, so you show compassion to those who fear you. You know our frame, Lord. You remember that we are dust. You're not surprised by our sin or our guilt. You have come to save us, Lord, for that very thing. And Lord, you are not you are not so glorified, God, in making us like Christ, though you are. Not as much as you are by showing us your love and your grace and your mercy in his name, so that Christ and his gospel and his work would be exalted. And so I pray, Lord, that you exalt, would exalt the work of Christ this morning. Give, Lord, these people the grace to come. Draw them near to You that their sins would be washed away and that they, their souls, Lord, would be as white as snow. Who can do this, Lord, but You? And Lord, You are willing. Whoever desires may come. Lord, give them the grace to come. Amen.